0: Thank you. What fun. Stephen Mansfield tells a true story about a church that had an incredible ministry to men. For years, the driving force behind this men's ministry at this church was a guy named Taylor. I mean, his ministry rocked on for years. And he reached a number of men, discipled a number of men, and had a great impact on the community. However, in the midst of a major transition in their church, Taylor got hurt deeply by his own community, and he stopped coming to church. He refused to answer the phone or talk to any of the guys who called him. People figured that he'd get it sorted out sooner or later, and that he'd come back to church but he didn't. And so, finally, some of the men in his church took things into their own hands and decided that they were going to reach out to Taylor and do whatever it took to reach him. Well, after some discussion with the other guys in the church, they decided to take a bold move. They decided as a group of men they were just going to go and camp out in Taylor's front yard until he recognized them. A hundred and fifty of them. So they set up rotating shifts, and they wouldn't leave. They said, we're not leaving until Taylor comes out of his house. They had electric lines running from neighboring houses to power up their televisions, so they didn't miss the game. They set up 20 barbecues and cooked up barbecue every night. They were in it for the long haul. (laughs) They even had some big signs printed that said, we love you, Taylor. ''Taylor, come outside. We're not leaving till you come out.'' And they put them on his lawn. But Taylor didn't appreciate it. In fact, Taylor called the police every day for five days on his former friends. And every day, the police came and had a talk with Taylor. Finally, on the sixth day, when Taylor answered the door to the police as they knocked on his door... The guys, all the guys on the front yard just erupted in applause and cheered for Taylor. And it broke his heart. On the sixth day, Taylor broke down and started to cry like a baby. And he finally came off the porch and every guy in the front yard hugged Taylor and told them that he loved them. I mean, these guys obviously had a deep concern, right, for their friend named Taylor In a similar fashion, the Apostle Paul shares with us a very deep concern for the believers in the church at Colossae. In Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5, Paul states his very specific concern for his brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is by far the most personal part of the letter. Let's all turn to Colossians chapter 2. One to five, you've had some time to find that now. And for those of you who are new to the Bible, there's always a, a table of contents in the front of every good book, so if you don't know where Colossians is, you can look in the table of contents and find it. But we know it's in the New Testament, and the first book of the New Testament is the book of Matthew, followed by Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, First and Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, there you go, chapter two. You say, Well, I'm I'm good with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Acts, Romans, even first and second Corinthians. It's the next four that I get stuck on. Just remember the, the general electric power company. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and there you go. There you go. It's all in the Windex. Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. And in writing this paragraph, Paul models how our hearts and what our hearts ought to feel for the local church. So let's have a look. There's no slide for the text. Follow along in your Bibles. Colossians 2, 1 to 5. He writes, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged in Christ. So the first thing we see in this text is the intensity of his concern. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you, he writes. And the churches at Colossae and Laodicea were, were only nine miles apart. So they had a lot of things in common, and they had, there was a close relationship between those two churches. And Paul says, in essence, he's struggling for both these local churches. King James uses the phrase, what great conflict I have for you. And I like that. It it, it just gives it even more of a dramatic flair. In mentioning his struggle, the apostle uses the Greek word agon for struggle or conflict. Agon, from which we get the English word agony. He's in agony for these new Christians, the word agon comes from this place where the Greeks would gather to celebrate their Olympic Games, you see, where they, where they agonized, where they, where they struggled, where they did battle on the, uh, in the wrestling ring and, and, and foot races and such. They, they, they fought to win. And Paul had been struggling. He'd been agonizing. He'd been fighting for the Colossians with everything he had which is always a good idea. It's always good to fight for people rather than with people. And he's agonizing. He's wrestling in prayer. He's fighting on their behalf. He he describes it as a great struggle. So this is no small burden that he carries for the churches. It's enormous. It's a gigantic struggle for him. One commentator mentions that What makes this truly remarkable is that Paul had never met any of these people. He'd never seen them face to face. Not once had he personally visited the church at Colossae, at least not yet. He'd never seen them face to face, never met them, didn't know what they did for a living, didn't know where they lived, didn't even have their address or their email. And yet he agonized over them. Why? Why did he have such a struggle for these new Christians at Colosse and Laodicea? Why? Well, I, I think it's because he had a deep sense of calling from God. He was called of God. He, he knew that he was God's chosen instrument to carry the gospel, the name of Jesus, before the Gentiles and the kings, and the people of Israel. God had called him. And he couldn't get away from that. That happens to people. When God calls them, and they undergo severe constraints, they just keep doing what they're doing because God has called them. This man who once persecuted the Christians, the followers of Jesus and watched as they were being stoned, now had a a heart of love. His his hard heart had had been replaced. He watched them being persecuted. Now he has a burden that compels him to reach out in love and write such caring, personal words to them. He had a calling from God to care for the sheep and shepherd the sheep. Oh, if only more of God's people had a heart like Paul. If only more of God's people had a burden for the welfare and the well-being of people. If we had a heart like Him, we'd pray more and we'd teach and serve and love and and care for others like He did, even from a distance. And, and, And we need... We need more people at the gathering who have a heart like that. We have, more, we, we have need for more people with a, a deep burden and a deep concern for people, for the, for the care and the welfare of their souls. We need Stephen Knight Messenger to have this kind of burden for junior high and senior high students, amen? We need that. But just because he has it doesn't mean you're off the hook. doesn't mean I'm off the hook. So so let's pray that God gives us that that same compassion, that same burden for people, even people we haven't met yet, that they might come to know Jesus Christ and grow in faith and and, uh, come into all the fullness of God. Paul agonized for the church. His concern was powerful and penetrating, passionate. As we move on in the text, we also see the heart of his concern now what was the essence of his struggle for the church? It says in verses... Whoop, whoop. Did I miss one? I did. No. Huh. Yeah, I'm, I'm losing it here. I'm losing it. The heart of his concern in Colossians chapter 2. I get, I get so excited about the thing, I forget to do the clicker. <laughs> Colossians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Help us understand the heart of his concern. That their hearts, he says, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul was this hard-hearted persecutor of the church, but his heart of stone had been replaced with a heart of love and compassion for Jesus and for his people. And here he is, pouring out his concern. He's just pouring out his concern for the Colossians. He longs for their hearts to be encouraged. And he longs for their hearts to be knit together in love. I I believe that people have two basic needs. Maslow has more, but I, I believe that people have two basic needs. They have the need to be loved. We all have the need to be loved, right? And we have the need to belong have a sense that we really belong somewhere and to someone. And here at the gathering, we we really want to meet those two fundamental needs that people have. We want for the gathering to be a place where people feel like they belong, and we want the people of the gathering to love one another so that we feel loved and we give love. And I think that the way we do this is through gospel-centered preaching that expounds the Word of God, through gospel-centered worship that truly keeps worship vertical. It's about Him and not about us. And gospel-centered community where we're developing this sense of fellowship and love and care and concern for one another. Why is that important? Well, look just look at the text and follow me if you if you if you will why is this important well if our hearts are encouraged and if our hearts are knit together in love then we will eventually reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ So so digging a little deeper, we discover that a a believer's understanding of spiritual things and the knowledge of Christ is actually accelerated when our hearts are bound together in love. That's precisely what the text reads. One commentator goes even a step further than I have, and, and he says, Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the Christian community. Hmm. Could it be so? This means that mere intellectual comprehension of the mystery of Christ is not enough because fuller understanding, the fullest understanding, according to this text, comes through and in the midst of the love of other Christians. The false teachers of the day presumably claimed access to the mysteries of God's truth. But Paul insists that Christ is God's mystery. Christ is the key to the mystery of the Old Testament and the New. All understanding is to be found in Him, in Christ... Not in the false teachers. Not in New Age theory. Not in Oprah. (laughs) But in Jesus. However, that understanding is best facilitated in the context of a loving Christian community of believers. That's what this text is saying. It also means that a a church-less gospel is really no gospel at all. That's why at every turn, when I encounter people, in the most loving and gracious way I know, I challenge them to get back to church. I'm done with church. How many times have you heard that? I'm done, I'm so done with church. I'm done with church. And I, I just I step into that every chance I get. I know the church has made a lot of mistakes. Believe me, I know it. And I know we've had some very embarrassing moments. Embarrassing. Shameful, in fact. But that's no excuse to give up on Church. It's just no excuse. I'm sorry. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Pastors like to repeat that, but it was Jesus who who authored that statement. So the church is His church and He calls us to be part of the body, not the board, not the bishop, not the session, not the denomination, but Jesus. It's no excuse to give up on the church, especially if especially if the revelation of God cannot be properly or fully known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within a Christian fellowship. Some of you, I can tell, are not buying into this. Why is that? Let me put words in your mouth. It goes something like this. Because I've been so hurt by the church. Just give me a little nod if you agree. That's what was going on in your head. I realize this is what the text says, and the, the full revelation of God is accelerated. I mean, in my understanding is accelerated within... The context of the local church, I get that, but, 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 It's a spiritual motorboat, you know, but, 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 but. But I've been so hurt by the church. That doesn't excuse you from being part of the Bride of Christ. So. So let's grow a new church. Let's plant a church that is absolutely stuck on loving people and helping them feel like they belong. What do you think about that? You think that's a good idea? Let's do it. Would you like to try? How many of you would like to try that? I'm in okay (laughs) (laughs) let's continue to plant this church and grow a church where everybody feels loved and and where everybody feels like they belong and it needs to be a gospel-centered church let's not just make this horizontal let's not make it about us and how, how are you feeling today Ed is everything okay with you And if Ed says, no, everything's not okay, then I feel bad because I'm supposed to meet his needs. Are you kidding me? The only one who can meet his needs is Jesus. I do him the best favor I possibly can by pointing him to Jesus and praying for him and loving him and caring for him, but saying, man, I haven't got all the love I need for you, Ed. I love you like crazy, but it's nothing compared to his. It's nothing compared to his. It needs to be gospel-centered church with gospel-centered preaching, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered community, gospel-centered service, gospel-centered multiplication. Sound familiar? Those are our priorities. And if we can just stick to those, I think we'll plant a church where people feel loved and they feel like they belong. Our focus will always be on Christ, on Christ in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And these are the things that I agonize over day and night, day and night. When I can't sleep at night, I'm awake at 3 o'clock in the morning. These are some of the things I'm thinking about. Oh, God, I pray that everybody who comes to the gathering, even first-time pickles, will will feel loved here and like they belong here. Now let's have a look at the purpose behind the concern. Verses 4 and 5. Paul says, I say this in order that, which hints at purpose. That's a purpose statement. First class conditional purpose statement in the Greek. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. For though I am absent in body, yet I'm with you in spirit, rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. So here in verse 4, Paul actually begins to deliver a series of warnings about the teaching that's threatening the Colossian church. For those of you who are here for the first time this morning, we're well aware, having come through the first chapter of Colossians, that there is some false teaching floating around the church at Colossae, and this letter is written in part to answer some of that false teaching. And in doing so, he also provides important teaching on our identity in Christ, which will help us to resist the false teaching and the arguments of false teachers. Even though they are fine-sounding arguments, even though they are plausible arguments, we can take our stand and resist them and live worthy of the gospel. Paul was motivated to say all of this because he did not want the enemy to get a foothold in the lives of these new Christians through this false teaching. He didn't want this new teaching to get a beachhead in the church and in the lives of the followers and deceive them with fine-sounding arguments. English Standard Version uses the term plausible arguments, and the King James says it like this, I say, lest any man should beguile you with enticing words. It sounds like it could come off a pirate ship. Ah, beguiled, matey. I don't want anybody to be beguiled, he says, by enticing words. So Paul warns the Colossians about the direct and dangerous threat in their midst. Some of the false teaching, friends, was coming from within the church. These people had woven their way, they had weaseled their way into the local assembly, and they were teaching from within. And it's important to... It's important to recognize that sometimes the greatest threat comes from within the church, from people that we thought we knew. Their arguments sound very plausible. They sound very feasible. And and using the King James language, maybe even enticing They draw us away from being gospel-centered. We we start focusing on other things and other issues. Clever arguments can beguile you and easily lead you astray. But especially if you don't have your anchor set in Christ and especially if you're not part of of a strong, local, loving, caring fellowship of believers. And so... That's why we're, we're not content with simply preaching on Sunday and worshiping to get singing a few songs together. That's why we will call people on the telephone whom we haven't seen at the gathering for a while and say, hey, what's up? Or I'll send an email. Huh, Mr. Email here. Uh, I will send an email, preferably before 5 a.m., and uh, send out the email and say, hey, we missed you. What's up? You know, did you... Were you out of town? Were you, were you out of gas? Were you out of energy? Were you out of money? Were you out of luck? Or, like, where were you? We missed you. We loved you. And we do that not to hassle people, just, but, but we want people to know that we miss them and we love them. And so the next time the trans go to Malaysia, I think they'll, they'll actually tell me in advance because they got a half a dozen emails while they were gone. Where are you guys? You didn't ask our permission to go on vacation. What's up with that? (laughs) We just want people to know that we love them and we miss them. They belong here. They belong to us. They're important to us. And that's why we encourage the use of silly name badges, just so that we can get to know one another's name. Oh, to hear your name. I used to be in sales. No surprise to some of you. But I used to be in sales, and, and people would come back in the door and i 'd say, "Hey, fred, good to see you again. The people would look, how do you know my name they 'd look see if they forgot their name tag from some other event. They know I, I remember you you were in here last week looking at a but, and your wife looked so good when she sat behind the wheel, and she 's going oh let 's buy from this guy <laughs> We want people to get acquainted and know each other and learn to love one another deeply from the heart that 's why we 're holding a kid 's gathering pool party, and family barbecue, along with all our volunteers, because we want the kids and their families to know that we value them, that they're important to us, that they belong here at the gathering, and we care about them, and Jesus loves them. We want them to know that. That's why we're starting a youth ministry for junior high and senior high students, because we want them to know that we love them, and we want to provide additional support, encouragement, and teaching in a gospel-centered environment so that that nobody beguiles them with plausible arguments, feasible arguments, fine-sounding arguments. Followers of Jesus who are not knit together in love with a church family are way more susceptible to false teaching. They're way more susceptible to being drawn away than those who are solidly planted in a loving, caring environment. So we just got to keep working on that. We just have to. And then we will enjoy good order and firmness of our faith in Christ like Paul says in Colossians chapter 2. Gordon MacDonald shared a story in a recent leadership journal about visiting a small group of men and women um, who were affiliated with Alcoholics Anonymous Gordon did that because he has a number of friends who are former or current alcoholics and he wanted to understand more of what they were talking about when they would talk about AA. And so he went to this group and here's what he found. Let me read parts of it to you. He said, One morning, Kathy, I guessed her age at 35, joined us for the very first time. One look at Kathy's face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful when she was 21. But now her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting. Her hair was unwashed and looked like it hadn't been combed in who knows how long. I've been in five states in the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, raped, robbed, And now she's crying. I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore. And now she's sobbing. But I can't stop drinking. I can't stop. I can't. Next to Marilyn was a rather large woman... Next to Kathy was a rather large woman named Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. Marilyn reached with both arms around Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was buried in Marilyn's ample bosom. I was close enough, Gordon says, I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? You just keep coming. And then Marilyn kissed the top of Kathy's head. I was taken by this story, partly because of my own background and the large part that alcoholism has played in my family background for a couple generations, and partly because I was touched by Marilyn's tenderness and her affection. When I read that story last week, I, I, I had to ask myself, could this kind of thing happen at the gathering? Could this sort of demonstration of love take place here? Is there space in our lives for the Kathys of this world? Are there any Maryland's among us who would step out of their comfort zone in a minute and wrap their arms around somebody like that who's really hurting? For that matter, are there any guys who are bold enough to go and camp out in somebody's yard until they came back to Christ and came back to the church? Are we that kind of a loving, caring fellowship yet? Are we willing to struggle, to agonize, to fight for the heart and soul of of another believer in Christ? Well, to the Kathys among us today, and I know there are some, men and women who just don't know what to do. Men or women who just can't stop whatever, here's what I want to say to you. To you who are broken and defeated and discouraged or addicted, here's what I want to say. You're going to be okay. You're with us now. You're with the gathering and we can deal with this together. You will get through this You just keep coming. Hear me? You just keep coming. You belong here. And we love you. Let's pray. Father, as we gather now around the table of the Lord to celebrate communion, I pray, Lord Jesus, that we will repent of our own self-righteousness, Some of us may be sitting here thinking this morning, oh, I thank God that I'm not sleeping under a bridge, or I thank God that I have been raped or robbed, or that men have to come and camp out in my yard. Lord, we repent of our self-righteousness this morning. We humble ourselves in your sight. Because any one of us here this morning... Could be in that place. And every one of us in this room today needs a Marilyn. We need somebody that we can we can turn to and and hang on to and go to for help and encouragement. But even more, we need Jesus Christ to be the center of our lives. Oh God, give give us the same concern for the hearts and souls of people around us, that we can reach out in love and woo them to Christ, woo them back to, back to faith or back to church. And we'll give you all the glory and honor in Jesus' name, amen.